since I have two guests, could you each please pronounce your names correctly for me? Evan Hughes. Lynn McCary. The two of you were part of a thing that was very influential in my youth, which was called Art Attack International, which is something we'll get into about how I got uh, sort of exposed to it. But give me a little bit of background on what Art Attack is slash was. So I started Art Attack in 79 or 80, honestly, I can't recall, in Los Angeles with another artist. And it was very informal. And we just called ourselves Art Attack because we thought we were attacking the streets with art. And we were just working in public on the streets doing ad hoc things where we would work in LA where there was a lot of neon out of use, but certainly uh, functional. And we would steal neon from abandoned motels or movie theaters or things like that. And we would reconfigure it to say whatever we wanted it to say or for it to just be abstract. And we'd relocate it in another area and hotwire some electricity and plug it in and hang a sign off of it saying, turn me on. And it would stay there sometimes. It would get broken sometimes. It would disappear. It didn't matter. We were just having fun. And then we relocated to, I started, I was splitting my time between Washington, D.C. and L.A., And then we were completely in Washington, D.C., and we were just doing ad hoc things around D.C. on the streets. And then the Washington Project for the Arts organized the Ritz Hotel Show, and it was an abandoned hotel on F Street, right next door pretty much to the 930 Club, which was a well-known punk rock club. And it was a five-story hotel that they were turning over to artists to take over rooms and do installations in the rooms. And it was in partnership with Collab, Collaborative Art Projects from New York. And my partner in, in Art Attack, Billy Burns, and I wanted to be a part of this. And the rules were you had to be in a group. And you couldn't have a room to yourself if you were not in a group. So Billy and I officially created Art Attack as a group. But at the time, it was just the two of us. So we made up a bunch of names and claimed that there were several of us in the group, but it was really just Billy and myself. And we did an installation in the Ritz Hotel project that included Neon, because that was our base. And we had a great time doing it. We met a lot of other artists. We met a lot of other collaborative artists. We decided that having a collaborative group was actually a really cool idea, and we really should have a group, and it shouldn't be just the two of us. And the Washington Project for the Arts was impressed with what we had done, and they invited us to do a formal legal installation outside of the Ritz Hotel across the street. And we were given a site at the old Landsberg Furniture Building on F Street. So we were really nestled in this little area between 9th and 10th on F Street in Northwest in D.C. And that was the start of us actually creating a collaborative group. We did invite other artists to come in and work with us and we became an official group and we were doing think something legitimately with permits and that's where Evan and I met. Evan and I were in the same studio building at 443 I Street and Evan has as a cabinet maker had a wood shop right next door to where Billy and I had been living and Evan was kind enough to let us use a lot of his equipment so that we could cut up some of the materials we were working with. And then Evan joined the group and Billy and I broke up and Evan and I have been masters of the group along with some other people for, since then, I'd say since 1984. The main thing was just this collab thing at the the Ritz Hotel. That was, I think, a big deal. It sort of combined parts of the New York art world with the DC art world. It was really a fantastic starting point, I think, for new thinking about art. 
when I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of DC. And so I saw a number of these projects throughout my youth. And the one that the, the first one that I saw that actually sort of was like dumbfounding me was the one called Dominion Dumb Doom, which you did in 1994 which was in Arlington, Virginia, and it was literally a five-minute walk from my childhood home. So I was able to go over there and illegally break into it and have fun in it and make my own art inside of it and stuff. And it was earth-shattering for me. It was just like, holy crap, what is this? Because if, for those of you who can't see it, what it was was basically it was they took a, an existing house that I'm going to make the assumption was already slated to be torn down. Yeah. And then just completely re deconstructed it and rethought like all the elements of it, including putting a pool in the front of it. It was ridiculously insane in such a good way that I was I was always wondering. So this is my first sort of personal question: like, how did you all pull something like that off? Like permits and legality. Like there had to have been a lot of stuff. And then of course, how did you fund things like this? So that project is a response to a project we had done in Prague. Once we'd worked on the Landsberg building, we really discovered that we had a real interest and talent, I guess is not necessarily the right word to use, but we were really interested in working with architecture and working with abandoned properties. And DC at that time and Virginia, probably like any urban area, had a lot of abandoned properties. And so it we wanted our work to be temporary. We wanted it to be public. We wanted the process to be entirely in the public domain so that people walking by would watch it evolve, would watch us have our conversations with each other, watch us argue with each other, watch us develop the project from start to finish, have it be completed, and then in a short time later, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, be demolished. And worldwide, wherever we've worked with our architectural projects, they're always temporary and they're ultimately demolished in the end. So yes, we chose a house that was abandoned. I don't know if it was actually slated for demolition, but we went through the process of finding out, going to public records, finding out who the owner was, approaching the owner, asking if we could have permission to go ahead and do this art project. Miraculously, most of the time people said yes, as they did in Arlington. And we did have to file for permits. We had to file for permits to work on the house that were pretty minor, but it just so that we were not doing any trespassing. This one was done through the Arlington Arts Council. They they were the big helpers on that. You remember? Yeah, the Arlington Arts Center. They they provided a lot of the avenues for getting everything together. Yeah, they offered us, we got a grant to do it. We we were invited to come do it. They helped us get the grant to do it. They gave us funding for it. We have always had to go out and seek our own funding, which is why eventually Art Attack became an, an, a, a legitimate nonprofit organization so that we could apply for our own grants so that we weren't beholden to arts organizations and having to make applications to arts organizations to curate art installations. And we did a project in Prague, and it was so successful and and and. We met. We worked with two artists in Prague that we invited them to come back to the United States and work with us, and so that's how the name ArtsLink grant. I think remember. Yeah, we got an ArtsLink grant to fund their travel to come to the United States and work with us, and the project that we had done in Prague was in Praha Five, and it was an abandoned property, and we had funding from the Soros Foundation and ArtsLink to do that project. So we've gotten a lot of funding. I live in Prague Five. You do. Small world. That is a small world. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we were, we worked on a building there that the, the city of Prague was happy for us to do some damage to because it had been a gypsy camp and it was in derelict condition. It's still there. I think Evan Google earthed it recently and, or someone in our Peter did, yeah. Google earthed it. Oh, Peter did and found that it was still there. You know, so while Evan and I are, I'm hogging the conversation at the moment, but while Evan and I are representing us as a group on this call, there are tons of artists who've worked with us. So we don't want to misrepresent that. It's just myself and Evan. There's a long list of, of artists worldwide who have collaborated and been a part of our team. That particular project was, again, pretty unique because I think we had a this, this sort of international component in it. It was our second project together with the two artists from Prague. So we sort of knew each other pretty well, and we probably one of the reasons it turned out so well. I mean, some of the better elements of it, the Prague artists came up with that nice stairway that you were talking about earlier that went through the roof. Yeah, the continued... The, the, I didn't mention it in the recording. So yeah, when I was one of the times when I broke in, I went in and actually did some portraits of a friend of mine in this stairway that was done that sort of literally the stairs went through the roof and up into the sky. And so he actually walked up the stairs and it was this beautiful framing with this like tilted sort of Tim Burton-y kind of like uh, door frame that wasn't squared up and everything. And it was really beautiful. So like I ended up using your artwork as like this amazing <laughs> location to then make my own photographs. No, that's great. That's in. great. Also, it was, it was just an interesting building because it had all these colors, like some of the floors have been painted, these colors and things that we sort of flipped over and made into different, exposed in different ways. So it, it had a lot more, a little more baroque than some of our other pieces, I think. It had a lot more different things happening at once in different places. You, so you've talked about your international stuff. So like, how did you all even create this international set of connections? Because you all talked about, well, uh, Lynn talked about Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. How did you all even get to Prague? And then how did you make these connections in Prague? And, and then, of course, I know you built it out into Germany and a bunch of other places, Austria and so on. The big moment with the international projects for us was that in 1986, Documento was happening in Kassel, Germany, and they had a side program just for collaborative groups in a separate part of town in, big, in a big abandoned factory. So they had groups from all around the world, and we participated in that, and this Icelandic artist in D.C. put us on to, I guess he saw it advertising some art publications somewhere, so we applied and got accepted to do a project there, and from there we met all kinds of people. And then that idea was transferred to Marseille in 1989 and in 1991 with the same idea in, in this abandoned slaughterhouse outside of Marseille, where we, they did the same thing with installations inside and outside, mostly European, but also South American and people from everywhere. That linked us up pretty fast with sources back then. And of course, it was all pre-computer, so we were working by fax and telephone and all the other ways that we used to have to go through to communicate, but it, but it worked pretty well. So one thing led to another. Our first trip to Europe, the one that Evan's talking about going to Kassel, we did our own fundraiser because we weren't really working with anybody to get grants at that point. It was really early in our in our process. And we did a fundraiser at the WPA in, in Botswana, which was an artist-run club within the Washington Project for the Arts. So we hosted our own fundraiser and sold tickets and had other artists come and do entertainment, so to speak. We had poetry readings and music and a DJ. 
and made a, a great night of, of a party of the whole thing to raise the funds so that we could travel to Germany because we didn't have enough money even for our airplane tickets. So that was our first foray into doing our own fundraising. It's so nice to talk to somebody from the Washington, D.C. area. I, I grew up there, and it's, it's sort of like, I'm going down like memory lane here. This is lovely. All these places you're mentioning, I'm like, I remember going there. So, <laughs> the, the other piece that I saw when it had the, the it thoroughly enjoyed was the vessel piece in also in Arlington in 1995. And it was this how I couldn't believe what you all did, which was you turn you took gutted the basement of it and then filled it like a swimming pool. And I to this day, I still have dreams of like swimming in that that pool. Uh, I loved that piece so much. Please tell me you didn't go <laughs> swimming in it. I did not go swimming in it, but I, I've, I've just dreamt about it. I used to have dreams of the that I would be swimming in it, and there were sharks in it with me. But that oh was wow, <laughs> somebody went there and did like weird satanic rituals inside, sitting around. There was one little edge. I think it might have been the, the 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 former kitchen of the house that somebody had. We left a ledge there, and somebody went and sat there and did weird satanic rituals at night. By the way, Matthew, are you going to be able to edit out all this dog noise? Because I can take the dog outside or something. Nope, not at all. It's just going to be lovely, you know, uh, ambient environmental noise. So you will be able to edit it or you won't? No, I won't. It just, it'll I be should, fine. Don't I worry take about the it. dog outside. You know, none of us are engineers. I think someone even called... Arlington County and had them come and inspect it because there was some concern about its stability and we passed the inspection miraculously. But we also had it, I mean, we gutted all the floors. So it was the, the house really itself just really was just a vessel. But we also put pumps in the basement so that from time to time on a, on a schedule, water would be pumped up the walls and then drained down again. So it was as if the house was weeping. And that was an element that not everybody got to see. It was one of those things, if you went there enough, you got to witness that. Also, you, you, can, you can see how different that building project was from the one you were previously talking about. Two different approaches of working collaboratively. And those two buildings, the Dominion Dome and the Vessel Project, sort of illustrate it pretty well. The Vessel Project sort of has a central idea, which was basically to fit, you know, the, the water in, in the building. And it was smaller things happening around, but not not very much. But but Dominion Dome was completely different in that way because it is it's a lot of separate separate things happening. There's no real central idea. There's like a lot of things floating around a, a, a structure and inserted into things. That's when, always been our way of working. Sometimes we work with this one idea and we just kind of make it work, and other times it, it fragments a little bit into, into parts. So again, that, those two buildings are a good example of each way of working. Well, I'd love to hear it. Like I'm, you know, I feel like there's two different kinds of artists sort of in the world. There are the solo practicing artists, and then there are collaborative artists. Yeah, and and not every artist can be collaborative. There's a certain sort of uh, personality type I think that does it better than others. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and a lot of these people do both. I mean, a lot of these people do their own work and they do collaborative work, so they juggle both things. We actually had some artists that worked with us under aliases because they were successful artists with gallery representation, and there was concern that their free-for-all experiences with Art Attack could damage the value of the collectability of their work that's represented by a gallery. 
So at the point where you were seeing our work in Arlington, we were really structuring ourselves very efficiently. And we had what we called a core group of artists. And there were four of us. And we had a meeting with each other every Sunday. So we'd get together on Sunday, late morning, early afternoon, and spend the entire day working on ideas, concepts, proposals, theories, projects that we might be trying to do, sketches. We'd be collectively creating, arguing, debating, and establishing you know, where, where to go next. And then every evening, just since you're from the D.C. area, it might ring a bell. Every Sunday night, we would go to dinner at Child Herald in DuPont Circle. And the four of us had a lot of free time and a lot of passion for what we were doing. And then we'd nail down a project, a location, and we would reach out to other artists and invite other artists to participate and they would join us. But we would often have sort of the nut of the idea established before we'd bring the other artists in. But regardless, every decision that was made on every project had to be agreed upon by the entire group. So four of us came up with a project in mind and went and got started with it, and four other artists joined us, all eight of us had to agree on every single decision we made. So you can imagine the conversations around that. Yeah. I can't imagine trying to get eight artists to agree on a single artistic expression. Well, but you know, it wasn't single necessarily. Like at Dominion Dome, as Evan pointed out, the house that you mentioned initially in our conversation, you know, the stairwell was Alish's from Prague, and we agreed to to him including that. So that was his, and we helped him do it, and we worked together on it. But it wasn't like, I mean, we all had to agree that the stairs were a good idea. But then, you know, there were other aspects that were brought in. Individuality was represented, but it had to be a part of the whole, if, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, for instance, on the, on the Dominion Dome project, the, the, the first idea that, that got the ball rolling on that was having the facade slide down. I don't know if you remember that. It's like a proscenium. I do. Well, it is almost like the facade we imagined as a screen that, that basically got slid into the ground, and that opened all the parts of the building up. So that was the first impulse, and that made it a like a totally frontal project from the, I mean, something you see from the road, from the sides and the back of the building, and there wasn't a whole lot going on. But that that was the first idea, and that came through, and we all liked that. So we basically put that into action, and then we started developing ideas around that for the separate parts of the building. But again, that had a central idea, but it sort of, the central idea sort of got dissipated because there were so many other things happening. Well, now, one of the things that fascinates me, a lot of artists and even collectives and groups and stuff, they're, they're often sort of regionally, whatever, this or that. But you all seem to travel so much and do so many. I mean, I saw stuff in Slovakia, Poland, Baltimore, Maryland, Austria. Yeah. Like, what was the... Like, how were you able to pull off this such an international set of works with so many, not only moving parts, but various people? Because I'm sure you had different collaborators for almost sort of each project in different places. We did. We had a whole different people from everywhere. Oh, no, we, we, we just had a lot of energy. You know, we, had, we, had a, we, we were enthusiastic. It seemed the European side of things, they were a little more open to collaborative groups than America was, at least at that time, or at least where we were working in America. We also had time. We all had time. A lot time. of time. As we get older, we say the, the, the most precious commodity is time, and we had tons of it in D.C. because D.C. was easy living and you know not so expensive, and we had a lot of time to do stuff. Well, and you can imagine how long it took us to do these projects, and we often had a timeline that we had to meet to get it done. 
And, and we'd, we'd go to Europe for three or four weeks at a pop and we'd, we'd go there and stay there and, and live there and get to know the place and shop there. And, and we'd rent an apartment there or be given housing there. And what we would do is we'd add on usually a week to the end of the project and figure out where we wanted to go next. So if we were in Poland and we wanted to go to Slovakia, we'd go to Slovakia and visit and see if we could meet some people and talk to them and find out what our options were to try to line something up. And then we'd, then we'd continue the communication after we got back to the United States. And that communication would be, you know, could we go there? Could they help us with a project? How could we fund it? You know, where are their grant opportunities? We'd work with the United States government, if you can believe it, with the United States Information Agency, helping us establish things. And once we got to another country, the American embassy would get involved and participate in helping to fund an opening reception or something of that sort. So there was a lot of research involved. And as Evan said, it was way pre-internet. So we were doing it all by phone, fax, going to a lot of libraries. So, yes, I look back on it. I don't know how we did it. Yeah, I remember those days. I, I remember the, the, there were books with lists of international granting organizations that you could then get their their address to then send them a letter to yeah. see what they fund. And like, I mean, I remember doing all this research pre-internet. Projects could take years to, to fully develop, or they could happen in three months. There was one year, it was 1993, and I think we did at least three international projects that year. So it was exciting and it was great to be able to go live someplace and, and live there and be a part of the culture and not just a tourist. And we learned a lot of interesting things when we worked on the Dominion Dom project, not Dominion Dom, sorry, Budanka in Prague, in Praha 5. We did a basket weave of, what was it, Evan, aluminum, stainless steel? Aluminum. Aluminum. So we did a basket weave through the through the roof in a particular pattern, and we, had, you know, it w- was 1993 or four, and the wall had just come down, and things weren't quite the way you'd think they'd be. And we found a, a store that had exactly what we needed. It had exactly the, the the width and the thickness and the amount, and we wanted to buy it, and we had the money for it, and we were going to buy all of it. We are buying such a large amount of it. We're coming from the United States, and we're trying to buy it in bulk. So we asked if we could get a discount. And we had a, you know, the Czech artists were there with us helping to translate. And the owner of the store said, well, why would I give you a discount? And the Czech artists thought that was hilarious that we were asking for a discount. And we said, because we're buying all of it. And he said, if you're buying all of it, I should charge you more. <laughs> And so we had these ex- cultural experiences where, like, that makes sense, but never occurred to us coming from the United States. So we paid full price. But we also met really interesting people there where we were working on that project again in Prague. And there was a particular tool that we didn't have. And let me tell you, we traveled with massive equipment. We traveled with chainsaws. We traveled with hand tools, power tools. We were fully, fully prepared to do our own work there and not have to rely on trying to buy tools or or use tools over there. And we had a transformer to deal with the electrical change. And we were working on this project. And there was one particular tool that we did not have. And we really, really needed it. And we didn't know what we were going to do about it. It was a power tool. And a guy dropped by, as people often did, to see what we were working on, see who we were, why were we there, what were we doing. And it turned out to be a construction guy. And he was off work on some sort of a disability, but he was on the tail end of his disability and he was perfectly good. And he asked if if he could help us. And we were like, yeah, in fact, do you have this tool? And he said, I do, let me go get it. 
And he went and got it. And he came and worked with us all day and helped us with the tools. And we never saw him again. <laughs> so magical things happened. He, he built the whole frame for that interior piece that was in Prague. So we did all the rest of the work on it. It is still there, too. That building's still there. We, th- we thought they'd get rid of it, but it's, it's back. I think it's a restaurant or something now. I'll go look for you. Okay, yeah, let me know. Go, go send a picture if you could. Okay, I will. Yeah, I'll track it down after we're done. Great, great. I just want you to know, too, that we built that project in the winter, and it was outdoors, and it was November and December, and it snowed every single day. As it does, yes. Yeah. Mm, it was a bad time of year for us to do a project like that, but it worked out just fine. Yeah, it worked. It was great. And we stayed in once the square somewhere, didn't we? Timish's yes. square? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fantastic time to be there. I've noticed also that you all still are, ba- or somebody, maybe not you all, is still maintaining a website, artattackinternational.org. Is that you all or somebody else in the group? That's us. Well, it's, if you can believe it, it's me. I'm the least technical knowledge out of everybody. But I, I basically put it together, and it's pretty rough. I mean, it probably needs some updating as well. Our entire archive was donated to, why am I blanking on the name, Evan? George Mason University. George Mason University to their library there. And so they have all of the Art Attack documentation. They have all of our videos. Everything was temporary. Everything was destroyed intentionally. And so all we have from all of our projects is documentation. So we have videos. We have good old-fashioned color slides and good old-fashioned black and white prints. And that's all we've got. We've got a couple of remnants. Yeah, we have some fragments, some remnants from some of the projects, a piece of door, that kind of thing. And so it's all at George Mason University for eternity, or as long as they'll keep it. And ultimately, they'll end up maintaining the website because we're not going to maintain it forever. But it's wonderful to know that all of our ephemera, and it's like every grant application, all of our faxes back and forth with various international colleagues, it's all there at George Mason University. So we're very, very happy that they invited us to contribute our collection to them because it has a, a permanent home. We also have some nice letters from Mary and Barry congratulating us on our projects. They're mixed into the archives. So. That's a DC joke. I'm not sure anybody else listening will understand that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> the former mayor of Washington who was arrested for drug use. Cocaine, yeah. <laughs> yeah that. That, that, that's what I was still there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we did the house projects in the United States, I don't think we did it in Europe, but in the, in the United States, whenever we did a project that was a house, and there were quite a few of them, we put a mailbox up out in front, and so that and we put a notebook in it, and people could go into the mailbox and include their messages to us in the notebook. And some people wrote poetry, and some people wrote hate mail, and some people wrote love letters. No one ever stole the notebook. We have notebooks. Evan dutifully made copies for everyone in the group. They're also at George Mason. But we got letters, we got cards, we got notes from children. We'd go to the mailbox once or twice a week and pick up what was inside and check the notebook. But it was wonderful to get these public comments. And worldwide, wherever we worked, the initial response to our presence was concern. Often, you don't belong here, get out of here, you're causing trouble, and we don't want you here, followed by, what are you doing? I'm curious, I want to know more about it ultimately to, for the most part, loving what we did, and then protests about the fact that what we did was going to be torn down. And lots of petitions were made and campaigns were done 
worldwide for the work we put up to not be torn down, even though that was always our intention. So it was very, very interesting, no matter where we worked, that that was the line of communication with the public. And we thought it was uniquely American, but it turned out to be true wherever we worked in public. Also, a lot of our stuff was really labor intensive. And I think on that level, people, even if people didn't understand anything, they understand what the effort it took. And by the end, to see the result of these things that on a very primitive level, people sort of changed their minds about us. We even had somebody drive by and give us cash. We were doing a project in Washington, D.C., and I don't know if you saw it, Matt. It was on, on MacArthur Boulevard, and it was on the traffic islands on MacArthur Boulevard. We changed it every week. We went out there once a week, and, and there was a progression. And so it was all sculptures, and there was a movement to the sculptures where they were relocated. It was a mess. It was just a mess, that project. It was kind of a mess. Yeah. But we were out there working one day and a woman drove by and she turned out that she was driving her kids to school every day. And so they were always, they were always looking to see what we had done and what we had changed. And she was fascinated by what we had done. And so she asked us if we, how we had funded it. We said we were self-funded. So she handed us 20 bucks. So back in the day, that was a lot of money. (laughs) Absolutely. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said that all these projects were sort of intended to be destroyed and all that, but even going back to like your taking of neon signs in Los Angeles and all that, have any of these, have have any sort of artifacts or objects from this ever resurfaced in the arts world? No, not that I'm aware of. That's a great question. Well, we, we, again, we, we didn't want our things to surface in the art, at least in the art market. That was one of the reasons to get rid of everything at the end. But there might be some things floating around. I don't know. We actually have slides of, of Dominion of Dominion Dumb being bulldozed. One of the artists in our group, uh, Alberto Gatan, went out there and documented the bulldozers coming to knock it down. But we actually are usually long gone by the time these things get destroyed. Like anything in Europe, we weren't there to watch it disappear. I think that Dominion Dumb project was the only one we actually witnessed the demolition of it. Yep. I'm pretty sure I was there on that day as well. <laughs> oh, good. Right down the street from you, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really hard. Like, I'm trying really hard. Like, I feel like I'm sort of like talking to people that like had this immense influence on my artistic career. Like, your entire sort of ethos of deconstruction and reconstruction has been, you know, an element in in my practice for decades because of originally seeing much of these pieces in my youth. I mean, when when you did Vessel in 1995. I was at uh, getting my BFA at the Corcoran, and I remember like being in class and telling my professors, like, "Oh my gosh, you've got to come see this amazing thing!" And they didn't know anything about it, so like I was be able to like introduce my professors to this stuff, and then suddenly it became part of the curriculum of my schooling oh. um, to include this kind of stuff. Wow, it's funny because some of the artists that worked with Art Attack were actually teachers there, but I know there were quite a few of them. The other thing is that some of what we did also, I wouldn't say all of it, was a response to the art world in general. So I'm I'm thrilled to know that this influenced you as an artist. It did greatly. Yeah. I worked in a in a commercial art gallery. I, I ultimately worked at the Washington Project for the Arts, but prior to that I worked for a photography dealer named Harry Lunn. And it was a very challenging experience because I'd studied art in college and I was really interested in the business of art. I, so I thought, and I got this, the job of my dreams working for this photography dealer. And I was thrilled because he was a dealer of some of the the best artists in the, in the world of photography, Ansel Adams, Bernie Sabat, Diane Arbus, et cetera. 
And I got to meet some of these artists and I got to experience the whole process of the art coming into the gallery and and being collected by a collector. And then I suddenly discovered it was a business. It was really just a business. We could have been selling cars. And people were buying the art in some cases because they just loved it, but in many cases because it was valuable and it was just an investment and they, they weren't buying it because of any other reason. And that was very disheartening to me. Additionally, people would come into the gallery and if they weren't poised to buy something, they were not treated very nicely. If they were just coming to see the show or appreciate the art, they weren't treated with any respect. And galleries can be very off-putting and very intimidating and people don't just wander into galleries for the sake of wandering into galleries. So there's this wonderful art all over the place that a lot of people just aren't seeing. And while the museums in Washington, D.C. are free because they're run by the federal government at the Smithsonian, Museums in other cities are not free. So there are a lot of people who don't even get to see art on a daily basis. And so part of the impetus for myself with the original founder of the group, Billy Burns, was to bring the art into the streets. Let's get it out there. Let's people, let, let bring it to them and they can respond to it any way they want to. And it's out there. They can destroy it. They can post graffiti on it. They can do whatever they want because we don't care. We put it in public. It's not protected. Let the world see it for what it is. And we were really happy to bring the art out into neighborhoods in some cases where there was probably no arts education and to let neighborhood kids come by and see what was going on and and involve themselves and participate if it was safe. So I'm thrilled to know that you as a young person saw it, experienced it, and was influenced by it. And I'm hoping that there are a lot more people out there like you because that was part of why we did what we did. Well, like I've now, okay, so again, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I've now moved, I lived in the Middle East and I'm now in Europe. And I have to admit, like everything you just said, I didn't realize how true that is until I lived in Europe. Because what I'm finding is, is that in America, it's very much a market-driven arts world. Whereas in Europe, there seems to be this massive amount of support, be it uh, government support or private funding or whatever it is, for projects that are great ideas that have no market value whatsoever. And so there seems it's like when I saw your works in D.C. at such a young age, that was my... That was my first time I'd ever seen work that was like artwork that was just for the sake of being produced and not for sale. The other interesting thing is we were meeting all these artists at these collaborative art events that we were going to in Marseille and in in Kassel. We're meeting all these other artists from all over the world that were artists for a living and their government supported them to be artists. They got, they got funding and basically collected a salary for being an artist and they couldn't understand why we would have to work. Why would we have to have a job on top of being an artist? Why, why wasn't being an artist enough? They had a hard time understanding that about us. And they also didn't understand. Ultimately, I, I, I went to work at the Washington Project for the Arts because after working in a commercial art world, I wanted to work really with art for art's sake. So I went to the WPA and they couldn't understand why arts administrators were also artists because in Europe, arts administrators were professional arts administrators. Now we experience that here in the United States now, it's much more common. You can actually study arts administration in college, which wasn't the case back then. So at that point, all the nonprofit art galleries in the United States were being run by artists and it was artists being artists, artists earning a living, artists supporting other artists. But in Europe, it was just, you know, you're an artist, that was your career. You you were supported. 
I know. I was born in the wrong country for sure. <laughs> or at least I got the wrong education. I, I now, like, unfortunately, I'm, I'm 47 now, and I, I really wish I either was born or was educated in art and art theories and art practice in Europe because there's so much more it's not just support, but there's more appreciation, more engagement, and more like really sort of pushing the limits uh, outside of the market and into the just like creating, just being expressive in ways that are so exciting and new. And the thing is, is what's really funny is, is like sooner or later, like I'm certain that if you go back through art history, even just through like just art attacks history, there is probably an artist that has sold some works in the art market that were inspired by works that they saw you all make. Possibly, possibly. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's, it's awful hard to tell about what the the range is of influence from all these things because again, they're all these were te- all temporary projects that weren't around for very long. So hopefully, the documentation will carry it forward and inspire more people to some of things. We also had, there was a performance element to what we did. There were performances at, at many of these projects. We had a performance artist working with us for many years who was part of our core group named Jared Hendrickson. And he was a, a performance poet. So he was, he was an incredible, very vivacious, charismatic guy. And when we did our first project in Kassel, it was based on televangelism in the United States, which was something nobody over in Europe had any knowledge about. And so we built a fake chapel and we, we, it was all based on raising money. And, and there was a performance when the, when the opening happened and Jared performed as a televangelist preacher in English, in Germany. And he was running around in a suit preaching and, and, and going crazy and, and, you know, wildly shouting about the, the burning in hell and redeem yourself and ran around with a bucket and people gave him money. We, we made enough money to go out to dinner a couple of nights. So he was a very effective performer. So there was, there was in all of our projects, at, at some point while he was with the group, there was some, some performance usually at the opening night, sometimes somewhere else in some other timing of the project. The performance and sound end of our work sort of slowed down as we proceeded forward. I'm not sure why, but I think that might might have been the labor intensity of some of the things we were doing, and there just wasn't enough energy left at the end. I really don't know what the reasons were, but it basically fizzled out. We basically became more of an installation group doing architectural projects towards the end. Also with the change of people, you know, it depends on who you're working with and what their interests are. But the, the, a lot of those projects, particularly from the late 80s and early 90s, did have performance elements in them. Okay, well, well another thing I'm interested in, because you just brought up the sort of like having a job, not having jobs, these kinds of stuff. So back in this time, so like 80s, 90s, were you all full-time artists? Did you have other jobs that supported it? Like basically what I'm, I'm thinking in my mind is like, I want the listeners to be like, sometimes you have to do things that don't necessarily make money in order to lead to things later that do kind of an idea. None of us were full-time artists. None of us, none of us. No. I mean, Evan would be the closest to that, but he was running his own business. I, I did a lot of freelance work so that I would have the f- freedom to travel and the freedom of time but I would I needed to earn a living. But living in DC back then was cheap. We were living sort of in the ghetto and we didn't have to pay a lot of rent. And so we didn't have to earn a lot of money. I mean, my my apartment, I realized it was a very different 
time on in in the world, but my apartment rent was three hundred and fifty dollars. So that's the same I paid for my place in Dupont Circle. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't have to work too hard to make rent, and I didn't have other expenses. So I, I, you know, and I think that was true with everyone in the group. Everyone was doing a lot of, you know, Jared Hendrickson was a doorman and a bar back at the nine thirty club. Alberto Gaetan did computer. I don't know, technical work for a doctor's office. We all had odd jobs that we were good at, but didn't need to have a commitment to a 40-hour week. Yeah, and I always had a, a, a studio full of machinery for building things. So we, we fabricated a lot of you know, things for the museums, the National Building Museum, and we, we built additions for artists, and we built furniture, did all sorts of different things out of there. A lot of, most of the art attack stuff that was studio built came out of my studio, so... So everything was kind of wrapped into one circus of activity, whether it was working for to pay rent or make art or build things for other other things. So it was all it's all kind of one thing, but uh, very very diverse. Well, something that I want to know a little bit about too is this was this amazing collaborative thing that went on for decades. Quite honestly, I mean, yep. it, it, the the last one I see marked is like nineteen ninety nine. At least that's the last one on the website. Is that the last one you all actually did? I think the one in Poland. Yeah, is that the yeah Poland? Yeah, yeah latitudes yeah. in nineteen ninety nine. I mean, the real the realities are, <laughs> we grew up. Uh, you know, members of the group got married, had families, got real jobs, and honestly the the one thing we keep coming back to is time people didn't have time people didn't have the time to have these regular meetings the meetings that we did on sundays really meant a lot it really helped us continue to progress so time started to disappear freedom started to disappear the opportunity to travel to europe if it were did arise we get into the challenge of somebody saying that you know they they can't take three weeks off to go travel for one reason or another. You know that back in the day in the in the eighties and, and early nineties, sure I'll go anywhere. How, what what time do I need to be at the airport? And I don't care when I come back. And then you get later into that decade, and you know I can't. I have to do this. I have to do that. I can't. I can't break this other promise. Plus the physicality of what we were doing it was very physical work. I mean we demolished buildings by ourselves with our hands. So some of that became a challenge as well. So I, I think as collaborative groups go, the fact that we were together for 20 years working hard is unique, or at least rare. But I think the time had come where it was becoming harder to actually realize the projects than to do the planning for the projects. Well, and that leads to what I wanted to know next was like, so how did this entire collaborative process of, of working and being Art Attack International influenced the sort of the continuation of your careers? That's a good question. I, I, I like to think we're still doing more or less the same thing that we've always been doing other than the Art Attack work. And we, we're still involved in the arts. We're still involved with architecture. We're still involved with all sorts of different things. Yeah, but just to be clear, so Lynn, you what are what are you doing these days? And then Evan, sort of, what is your sort of creative practice these days as well? I mean, I'm an event planner. I I plan big fundraising events for nonprofit cultural organizations in New York City, and I have to say that my Art Attack experience prepared me for this. And all of the planning and organizing, I was I was the the main person in Art Attack that did grant writing and applications. And uh, I, we did it collaboratively, but I was the person doing a lot of the research, 
I was the one planning plane tickets and where we were staying and all the sort of nuts and bolts of things, which really prepared me for being an event planner and doing seating for 500 people. And I am most interested in working with cultural organizations because I want to know that I'm working towards the better good. And I, I want to work for organizations that are going to benefit humanity, so to speak. So I don't want to do corporate promotional events. I don't want to do product launches. I like doing fundraisers for cultural organizations I respect. And so it's my own company. And so I have my own team. And that collaborative process is still there. I hire a lot of freelancers. I hire a lot of people from the art world or the creative world. And so for me, even though we're not creating art attack projects, I'm still getting a lot of the same inspiration and encouragement for my that creative part of me that's organizational every day. And I, I love what I do. I love the clients I work with. And I'm happy to be hiring people who are younger than I am, who are looking for that income that gives them the free time to do what they need to do to create whatever they're creating. Yeah, I used to work in that industry as well. I used to, I was a roadie and I actually worked at the 930 club for many years. And when it was sort of uh, slow at the club, we would do hotel gigs. And so we would do these festivals, events and things like that. So I actually, we we may have crossed paths at some point. (laughs) We may may have. And, you know, I I got my, my, I have to say, I got into event planning a little bit too, because, you know, we did this fundraising event for, Art Attack at Botswana in, at the Washington Project for the Arts. And I helped organize that and put it together. And I had a lot of fun doing it. And it was a lot to do in terms of strategizing it. And when I worked at the Washington Project for the Arts, they always did an annual gala that was a very big deal. And I would watch that come together. And I was really inspired by that process. So they, they it all goes hand in glove for me on that level. And I think... I feel like Evan's been doing, since we moved to New York, I feel like Evan has gotten much more involved collaboratively, so to speak, with professional artists that are, you know, with major gallery representation, than, more so than in D.C. So I, I think there's a lot of collaboration that's continued on for, for Evan there, although here he is. I don't need to speak <laughs> to him. I've always been sort of a maker of things. Since I've been a kid, I've built things. And there's and sort of any you know, isolation, and, you know, studio work and sequestered away. And after all the art attack work, we learned how to collaborate better and work with other people, which has led to much better and bigger things. So I'm basically doing the same thing I've always been doing, you know, fabricating things and working with artists and working with architects. And I, I know the language now, you know, how to, how to speak about these things. And it's led to a, a very fruitful sort of, I don't know, it's been four decades or something now I've been doing this. So it's been a very good thing sort of crawling outside of yourself and opening yourself up to other people and their ideas and working on the areas between, which is what collaboration is all about. That, that it's like, I often say it's, it's, uh, we build a lot of furniture as well. So the, the areas between furniture, art and architecture, wherever they cross over, that's where we like to work. And we did a lot of that with art attack. And that, that, that was one of the big benefits of it. Well, like I noticed on your website, Evan, that you're actually doing a lot of fabrication for other artists yes. as well. well. We did that in D.C. as well. At least in the 80s, there was a tendency for painters that were trying to move on from painting into three-dimensional work. I think a lot of them were inspired by Frank Stella and a few other the, the New York artists who were switching out from painting to sculpture work. So that, and they, they kind of didn't know how to do that. So they come up with these ideas, and I'd 
talk through it with them and discuss things. And we build prototypes, build samples and things until they kind of felt confident with it. And then we start building projects. That goes back a, a long ways as well in our focus. Marvelous. All right. Is there any topics you want to talk about that I didn't know? Like, cause I, I only researched so much. And right. I knew so much about you. So like, is there anything that you can think of that might be an interesting topic that I didn't even know to ask you about? Well, again, the diversity of artists is, is everybody's so different and involved in this group. We also had a lot of these volunteers working with us for all kinds of different reasons, but I'm sure they would all have a, probably a slightly different view of than ours on how things went and what it was all about for them. In a positive or a negative way? Probably both. We will be lost some artists along the way, that's for sure. I mean, but usually earlier rather than later, which is good. So, yeah, it, like you said, it isn't for everybody, and especially to do it on a continual basis the way we did it. It's not an easy way to work. Well, okay, within that then, when you were working collaboratively, which both of you quite honestly still are to this day, but like, how do you find a good collaborator? Like, what are some characteristics that say like, okay, this is a person I can collaborate with well? It's hard to say because you never know really until you get into it. You, you think somebody would work out great, but they don't. Well, for, for instance, we, in the early days, we, we never really had many painters involved with Heart Attack. Like we could tell, right, we usually went, with the kind of work we were doing, we were looking for people that knew how to do that kind of thing. So we, we in, the, in the beginning, there was, I think, two or three painters when we, when we did the Alshonsky shows and that sort of thing. That was, But the painters basically had a way of drifting away sooner or later after we were doing all this heavy labor construction projects. So, so we tended not to look that much at painters and look more towards people that were had building skills integrated into their work, I think. That'd be one example. Lynn, anything on how to find good people to collaborate with? Trial and error is all I can say. We tended not to seek people out. People came to us and asked to collaborate with us. And I think sometimes people worked out great. They fit right in. I, you've got to be able to contribute, but you've also got to be willing to be flexible. And those are both hard things to do because it's hard to contribute to a group that knows itself so well and everybody's really sort of speaking in, in, in shorthand. But you also have to, you have to be willing to be flexible. So we've had some artists that have come and gone because they wanted to be a part of the group, but then they were really dogmatic about their own point of view and not, not willing to collaborate or be flexible. And you, it's, 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 a tough, it's a tough personality and a tough skill and a tough talent to, to combine all into one. I think we've been very lucky. We've, gotten, we've had some great yeah, collaborators. Yeah. And we've had some collaborators that we lost for whatever reason because their life took them elsewhere physically or re with responsibilities, and we've, we, we felt their loss. So it, it goes both ways. But we, we, we did one project in Europe. This only happened once, but we actually basically fired an artist and sent him home because he was just not collaborating well with us or our hosts. And so, you know, every once in a while, things go really south, but we managed to get through it. And of course, you try to hold on to the people that you, once you learn that their ways of working, then, for instance, the core group, which was me and Lynn and Jared Hendrickson and Alberto, we, we, we were together for years and years. So we, we kind of knew each other well enough. And for that reason, we were productive together. But then later on, this guy, Peter Wino, was with us for years. And he was very consistent and, and great guy, great guy to work with, very creative. But you, you never knew what was going to happen when. 
And some people just prefer not to work with it on every project. They drop out of one and join back up a couple of projects later, depending on what's going on. So it's a pretty loose situation. Are you all still in contact with all these people? Yeah, more or less, yeah. Even the ones in Europe, yeah. Yeah, Jared, Jared moved to London. And so we hear from him emails and things. Alberto's around. Yeah, most of them are still around. And we're in touch with the Czech artists we work with. We're in touch with an, a curator we worked with in, in Austria, another artist in Poland. Yeah, we're still in touch with people. Now that we have the internet, it's a lot easier to stay in touch with these people. Yeah. We should do an art attack reunion. <laughs> there you go. In Europe. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but a post-COVID thing, like, like a coming out kind yeah. of Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want to go back, though, for a second, though. You mentioned about how the, the entire collection of the archives of Art Attack is at George Mason University. It was George Mason, right? Yep. Yes. Okay, great. How did that come about? Because like I've, I've been talking to a lot of people about like legacy planning and getting works and collections and things like this. And so like, how did that work? Like, how, did they approach you? Did you offer it to them? Like, how did that all work? Well, this was Evan's genius because all of our stuff was in storage at Evan's studio. And Evan said, we have to do something about this. I can't store it forever. And if we store it forever, something bad will happen to it. And it's too much of a legacy that we went to great efforts to keep. And so Evan did a lot of research on where it might belong. And everything fell into place for George Mason, which is based in Virginia. You know, as you know, we did some projects there. So it fit in. And D.C. is such a tri-state seen. We subsequently found out that the, the DC Public Library might have also taken it, but it, it, it's an educational library and it's specific. It's a specific division of their library that's dedicated to public art. So it really is the right place for it to be. Yeah, well, the, the, the big ticket with that was that Peter Winant, who worked with us, ran the sculpture department at George Mason. And then we also knew somebody named Don Russell, who was an old friend of ours. So the, the two of them helped us get the foot in the door and see if they'd be interested. And they they were. And Don was a former board member of our not-for-profit not, pro- not for profit organization. So when we were incorporated as nonprofit. So yeah, it just fit together well. And the fact that it's a library that's dedicated to public art is, and, and I think it's not just public art. I think it has to do with public art. And, and if you can, I, I may be phrasing this wrong, but, but, but punk art of DC. So it's a, there's a punk rock element in this. And because of the time frame of when we were doing it and the nature of us doing these public installations it, it fits into their their focus you know that might be something worth talking a little bit more about the, the sort of influence of the punk ethos i was just about to ask if you all like hung out with like the discord group and all that okay well not so much them but we were at the 930 club constantly lynn, lynn lived right upstairs she lived in the 930 club <gasps> so you lived at the 930 club i did i lived on the fifth floor facing the street it was god why didn't you lead with this <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because I was living there with Billy Burns, the, 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 my co-founder with the group, and we lived there for a year. And I went to the 930 Club. They weren't open every night, but every night that they were open, I was down there because I could go for free. And I got to meet Jared there because he was a doorman there. And I just hung out there. It was my living room. And I wasn't always there to see the music. I was often just at the back bar having peanuts and drinks for, for dinner. And when I met Evan, Evan was so excited because Evan to this day is very, very interested in, in music and going to see live music at clubs. And 
he was like, oh, this is the woman of my dream. She's at the 930 Club. She can get in for free. She's <laughs> into music. And I'm like, I'm really just into the back bar. But uh, <laughs> it was an exciting place to live. It was illegal to live there. It was not legal to have an apartment there. We were living in a loft that had no, I think we had a hot plate. The bathroom was down the hall and it was a public bathroom. There was no heat at night or on weekends. It was rough living. There's no question, but it was. I'm surprised cheap. the 930 Club was even legal. Like, I mean, the place they packed so many people into such a small space that it's there's true. no way that met fire codes. No. Oh, and there was a there was a there, what 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 was that? Well, we won't get into it. There was a dumpster fire issue that blocked a fire exit once, and bad things happened. Somebody got up on the roof and fell through a, sky, a skylight and died. I mean, the 930 Club. The other thing that we used to do in, in our loft there was we'd go down to the 930 Club. I can't even believe I did this. We'd go down to the 930 Club, Billy and I, and hand out invitations to every single person in the club to come upstairs to our loft at when the club closed. And we would have after parties in our in our loft. And we would just sort of, the party would continue. And there was no elevator because it was a manually operated elevator. So if you were outside of business hours, there's no elevator. And so people would climb up this giant internal staircase, five flights to come into our loft and party. And I don't know why we thought that was fun, but we did. I, I did that. I, I've, I remember doing that. Well, then I, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> we had like, a refrigerator that was that. filled with vodka and beer and nothing else. And just and I think it, we just played music and we had neon lights for lighting. And yeah, it was crazy, crazy. And and there was a there was one year where there was a snowstorm on Valentine's Day and we were inside and everything was shut down and all the streets of DC were blocked. And I mean, DC shuts down if there's three inches of snow, but this was probably 18 inches of snow. But we had the neon in the window and it was a glow. And some guy climbed up the fire escape outside the building to see if we were having a party. And uh, we did not let him in. But the punk rock music scene was there. It definitely was a driving force in terms of energy, creativity. We can do what we want, attitude. You DIY know. Thing, yeah. It's very encouraging to see these bands play because, you know, basically it, it inspired everybody to do things that, that they want to do, whether they really had skills or not, in, in a way. Okay, wait. Give me some context on what, when you're saying punk rock. Like, give me some bands or some people to give a, a, a sense of who you're talking about. The, the, the sort of straight edge skinhead crowd which kind of wasn't our thing. That, you know, they're, they're, they were sort of a little too orthodox in a way for our taste. But we liked, you know, we, we, we liked the Bad Brains. We liked yeah. Black Flag. We liked, you know, the hard, fast stuff. And the Butthole Surfers. Actually, Jared Hendrickson's first night as manager was a Butthole Surfers show, which is a story for another time, but it was completely crazy. The Minutemen. The Minutemen. Hus mm -hmm. Husker Du. Yeah. Is it Husker Du or Husker Du? It's Husker Du. Yeah, this that that stuff's a little bit before my time, but yeah. I I did listen to all of it because it was the these were the bands that influenced the people that I was then listening to because like I grew up on Minor Threat and Fugazi. Yeah, and, Fugazi, and fantastic. Yeah, well, the Fugazi thing. I think Ian Mackay lived pretty close to you in New Orleans. He did back back. He then. did indeed. And they, yeah, they, we went to the same Seven Eleven. Oh, yeah, they, they dropped by the projects occasionally. We, we never got to know them very well, but he he and his girlfriend came by time to time they were nice enough yeah like we were never really friends no. let's say but we, we 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 recognized each other when we saw each other yeah yeah that's probably what, what, what relationship we had but this whole idea of, of, of doing things yourself and getting out and making things happen without any 
preconditions was inspiring to us. And that's that's what we sort of brought out of the 930 club scene. And DC Space, too, there was a whole different crowd over there that was, you know, there were people DC doing things. Space. Wow. I haven't thought of that in years. Yeah, but there were, there were different crowds. The DC, DC Space crowd, they, they integrated a little bit with 930, but it was, it was more of an artist bar, you know. That was interesting, too, because you know, I to do some of my meetings with artists over there when we were making things. and Well, but then, that, I mean, that, that DIY stuff is even like Fort Reno concerts, you know, like these yeah, outdoor yeah. festival concerts that were free or you know maximum of $5, and they were all ages. I mean, it, it was very in, inclusive time. Uh, for for people to just be participating or engaging, that you know, to a certain extent, has sort of gone away because now the nine thirty club has become this rather corporate uh, yeah, club. Yes. Which don't get me wrong, love the new nine thirty club. However, it is very corporate in comparison to its roots. Yeah, I think I think the word is access, and and by giving people access to things that are interesting and things they want to do anyway without having money in the way and that kind of thing is, is a benefit to everybody. I mean, Fort Reno is a great example. Fort, Fort Reno was around in the seventies, even, you know, they're doing like hippie mm-hmm. concerts up there and stuff. So that, that kind of thing just keeps going. And the more people that show up for these things, the more exposure the artists get. And nine thirty was that way too. I mean, it was, it was, it was easy. You know, we always saw the opening bands. It'd be some band from McLean or whatever, you know, up there banging away, you know, it, you know, there's a chain with these things where you have a, just like you would in a concert, where you have a you know lead performer and then two openers, and, and they kind of bring them along. And before you know it, the the number three person is playing number two, and number two is playing number one. That, that's how it works with lots of things, you know? Oh, I saw so many uh, three bands for three bucks. That's right. Yeah. At, at my club. Yeah. yeah, they were, it was, it was such a great time that it's, I, I always wonder like where else is that that kind of thing going on now? Me you know, too. Like, I, wonder I wonder too. To be part of that again. I wonder too. I wonder too. I wonder if it just doesn't happen by itself though and disappear on its own terms. You know, I mean, the, the, the all these cities are changing so much. I mean, Washington is just it's incredible. Every time we go back, we don't even recognize the place. A lot of it's cost. If you don't have time and you're spending all your time making rent, you don't have time for other things, and that's that's a problem. Agreed. So maybe my, my, maybe there's some minor cities somewhere, some medium-sized, smaller cities that these things are still happening. Detroit. Well, Detroit's even coming up now here. But the funny thing is, again, access and time and all these sort of basic things are actually much more important than we ever thought they were. And reasons for doing. I mean, there's a reason they had three bands for $3. Because they want exposure and they want as many people in there as they can get in there to to interact with. So that's it's very much like a public art project. Well, I mean, DC is great for all these kinds of things. Like I'm very pleased that I grew up there for a lot of things. I mean, the 930 club and that whole thing, the black cat, yeah. all the different clubs that we went to at the, in our youth, that like, but even the Smithsonian, you know, Absolutely. like we talked about earlier, the fact that we had access to a world-class uh, art and historical records and, and, and objects for free was very influential on me. Yeah, for sure. And even I, I got to watch the building of the National Gallery's East Wing, the IMP building. No. That being constructed. And, and I watched the Maya Lin Vietnam War Memorial go in, which is also unbelievable. So just to, that I I saw, yeah, that I saw. Yeah, so, but th- these are you know big, momentous things, especially in a town like DC, which is not as strong culturally as some of the other cities. Those two two particular 
structures are still fantastic. I mean, they're, I think it might be one of the best monuments, I think, in the world. It is. It really is a great monument. And for a 20-year-old you know, Asian-American woman to put this together, it was just phenomenal. That, that's how open-minded people were then. I know. I know. But that's, you know, that's another story. But anyway, th- these things are they're important, I think. Well, leading on to that, I generally end the podcast with some sort of advice um, for the next generation <laughs> of artists. Not for me, obviously, because I'm not doing it right. But obviously, you all have done something right, and you've had long, uh, you know, amazing careers. So any sort of insights, either some advice you received that was really great and influenced you, or some advice that you have from your own experiences that the next generation could you know, have a little bit more success in their careers? Well, you know, Art Attack used to give lectures, if we could, wherever we were traveling, to students, high school or college age uh, art students. And the one piece of advice that we always shared at those lectures to these students was, just go do it. Don't wait for someone to come and invite you to do something. Find a way to just do it. You can do anything you want, and you can probably do it almost anywhere you want. Just find the way to do it. If you sit around waiting for someone to come and bring it to you or bring the opportunity to you, it could never happen. So if you feel inspired and you feel driven, find a way to get it done. And if it means doing it by yourself, do it. If it means finding someone to collaborate with, even if it's only one other person to partner with to help you get it done, just find a way to get it done. Don't sit around and wait for an opportunity to fall on your lap. Yeah, and so, somebody once advised me, I can't remember when or where it was, but a lot of this is about controlling your life and not letting other people control your life as much as you can. I mean, you have to get out, like Lynn says, and do these things, but also doing what you're best at. I mean, it, there's so many people that are, uh, lack enthusiasm for what they do, and that's not to, to anybody's benefit. I mean, if you think what you do is best, that's, that, that's you, what you have to contribute, that's what you should stick with. Until it, until it doesn't do that anymore. And it's a very fundamental thing, I know, but it's, you know, we never planned any of these things out or anything, but we had the energy and we had the interest and the skills to make these things happen collectively. I don't know how you, how you exactly pass that on, but I think everybody's got their own enthusiasms and they should follow them as, as often as possible. Yeah, it's not specific to art. <laughs> no, it's, anything. It's life. Why waste your time doing something you don't want to do and that you're no good at? You drag yourself to work every day for, for whatever reason. It's not helping anybody. Oh, I know. I have this great story. Let me see if I can try and condense it quickly. I was working at the 930 Club. Tricky was playing. And we, as the crew, we all dressed in drag for the concert. And Tricky ended up loving it. He ended up coming out partying with us. We ended up at an after-hours club called the Cadillac Club right. and stayed there until like six in the morning in drag, doing lots of drugs, all kinds of craziness, <laughs> sex in the club. I mean, it was just bizarre. But anyways, and, and at the end of it, we we were still in drag and we came out at like 6.30 in the morning and we were sitting out in the front of this club and all these DC workers were walking around in their suits and ties and briefcases <laughs> and they all just looked so depressed. Yeah. And, and and we're just sitting there with like look at them and look at us. Like exactly. we just had like the night of our lives in drag partying with Tricky, doing a bunch of cocaine and great memories and they're just dragging their asses to some job that they hate. Right. I never want to have that job. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but a caveat to that though is it's hard to know sometimes what you 
what you do best and what you're most interested in, you know? I mean, it's not necessarily self-evident, but if you do know, you should really just get on with it. Of course, you know, you stand a chance of being like me, which is, you know, being a 60-plus guy doing the same thing he was doing when he was 18, but I still like it every day. I like what I do. I look, I look forward to work every day. Well, you also make beautiful furniture. I just have to no, thank you. throw that in. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I love your 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 woods are amazing. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And again, I wake up every morning. I look look forward to going going to work. So, whatever we're doing, which is varies like crazy, but it's always something new, which is good. All right. Any last things? No, I, we, we very much appreciate you contacting us, though. It's been an interesting conversation. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for for letting us know we influenced your life, and thank you for doing your own due diligence to find a way to get to us after all these years has anybody else found you all recently we had no. a couple of people that did, did some thesis theses master's thesis some sort of collaborative groups <laughs> uh, but that was just that was just emails i think we will probably be excerpt in some obscure journal stashed away in some academic dusty room well, as part of this, we we create transcripts from this uh, podcast, so theoretically that could now be researched as well. Oh, good, good, good. So in Poland, we went to do a project in Warsaw in 1993, and we were working with a museum there. And they were our hosts, and they'd provided us with housing, and we'd gotten a grant to be there, but we needed to work with the city to find an abandoned building. And for some reason, the the city representative, I don't remember who the person was, whether they were a district council person or the mayor, whoever they were, they kept trying to get us to work at squatter buildings in Warsaw. There were a lot of buildings in Warsaw. Warsaw was essentially leveled by the Nazis, but there were certain areas that were left barely standing. And those barely standing historic buildings were taken over by squatters. And I don't mean artist squatters, I just mean real squatters who were living there with illegal electricity and in apartments with no front doors, but really living rough, but they were squatters. And they would, we'd get sent into these buildings. So where the city would be like, Oh, you should take over that building or take a room in that building. And we'd go in and we'd be confronted by these residents telling us to get the hell out or they're going to kill us. And you know, they were going to do violent things to us or uh, we didn't know what was going on. I mean, we'd go out into building after building where this was our experience. And we went back to the city and we said, you know, we can't work in these buildings. There are people living there. They don't want us there. They want, they want to fight with us. He goes, yeah, but it's going to make really good news stories. It's going to make really good press. And all he was interested in was us getting into trouble. He didn't really want to help us do an art project. He wanted us, the city wanted us to have problems. And so that they could, I, I guess, exacerbate their issues with these squatters. And we just, we just refused to do it. And we've realized that we were not being used by the museum, but being used by the city and, and the, the people we were dealing with in the city. I don't want to say the entire city of Warsaw was doing this to us. We were pawns in a game and, and we were not going to do it. We just weren't going to participate in it. So we ended up working on the grounds of the museum and we were given a building not to do any damage to, but we could work within it. And it was a little back building outside the, the, the museum and there was, we spent so much time in Warsaw sitting around waiting, waiting to meet with the public officials, waiting to get permits, waiting for this, waiting for that. We ended up cutting down a little tree, pretty small tree, that was 
destined to be cut down. We weren't just killing a tree. And we decided to put the tree through the building so that the, the tree was just going to slowly disappear. And in this this trapped environment of, a, of essentially a really long hallway, which is what we'd been feeling like we were doing the whole time we were there. And we, as I said earlier, we traveled with a lot of tools and we had a chainsaw with us and Evan pulled the chainsaw out. And all of a sudden, various officials from the city were super interested that we were going to cut this tree down with this chainsaw and, and have this like, you know, show. And so we went and got a handsaw and there were three artists. It was me, Evan, and a woman named Patty Harris. The three of us were working on this project and we took turns with our handsaw sawing the tree down as slowly as we possibly could. And they all lost interest and got bored and walked away. And our, the spectacle never happened. And the tree got put in the building and we left. Uh, so that one's called Waiting. And that one, that one was in Warsaw. And it was such a frustrating experience. And, but it was a really unique cultural experience. And, and I, I, you know, it's a story. And it was frustrating. But it was also, I think, pretty relevant for the time frame. Again, 1993, the wall had just come down, things were just opening up. And this idea of change in those environments was not pretty and not easy. And we, we got caught in the middle of it. So there were no fights. Excellent. <laughs> Evan, do you have any great stories? Oh, we got a million stories. I don't uh, That one was just pure frustration pretty much. But, but these buildings they were showing us, there's these beautiful Parts of Warsaw that weren't destroyed during World War II had these amazing buildings, and a lot of them were still standing, but in bad, bad shape. Again, they were just coming out of a different time. We thought it was the perfect time for us to be in Eastern Europe, but it, it, at the same time, it was full of problems. But one, one interesting thing, again, back to this project in Slovakia in Poprad, they had these, I guess, municipal galleries or municipal spaces that you could do art in, and Rather than doing two years of military service, I don't know if it's still this way in Czech Republic or not, you could do two years of community service. And one way you could do your community service is, is to work at these municipal museums or, or galleries. So when we went to Poprad, we I think there were like seven of us or six. We had a big group of us. But they also gave us all this help with, with people that are doing their community service rather than doing military service. We had this, it was a huge project. We basically took the whole building over, and these very skilled tradespeople that knew how to do stonework and weld, they knew how to do everything. So we had this great staff of technical possibilities that we usually don't have, and that's probably why that project came out so well. They also took us into the forest. They were putting in some new electrical lines down the mountain. Again, we were in the Tatra Mountains, and they were going to be clear-cutting some pine trees so that they could run these new electrical lines. And so they took us into the forest to cut down these pine trees and then truck them back. The installation includes a big group of pine trees that were hanging upside down over yet again. I guess this pool of reflecting water I'm now realizing in this conversation <laughs> is something that we do repeat, which I don't think was ever intentional. But oh, now I don't that know. It's come up. Yeah, it's just, this is probably a third pool or fourth pool. <laughs> and I don't think we ever thought of it that way. So thanks for bringing that to our... And then there's the McCarran Pool Project too, which is... Yeah, we pools are part of our vocabulary, I guess. Maybe it's just water. Maybe it's just water. A vessel. Yeah, there you go. The fact that the city in that case helped us work with local officials that, you know, I would that would never happen in the United States. You'd never have like the electric company or the tree company saying, oh, you've got artists that want to want trees, have them come work with us for the day to cut them down and haul them. That would just not happen here. So we did have those kinds of Actually, it does. I, I, I have really? 
I had a conversation with another artist, uh, Patrick Dougherty, who does oh, stick yeah. works. Yeah. And and he actually works with the the like highway maintenance companies and things like this and then goes out and they they work together to clear like sides of highways where he ends up getting his material to create his sculptures. Oh, I'm thrilled to know that. I had no idea. That's great. Yeah, so it does happen. It, I do admit I do have to admit it is rare, but it does happen. Yeah. That's great. That's wonderful. I, you know, I, honestly, we could probably give you a 15 minute story of something really unusual and to us and interesting for almost every project we ever did, especially the ones that were in Europe. And, 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 and going back to one of your earlier questions about how did you do this traveling all over the country or the world in the Poprod experience, for example, when that project was over, we we knew we wanted to do something and we'd been in conversations with some people in Krakow, which w- turned out to be our last project. But when the project in Poprod ended, our group split up and some of the members of the group went back to the United States and some didn't. And Evan and I literally walked across, it's a legitimate, it doesn't sound like we're, we, weren't, we weren't doing Sound of Music, but we walked across the border between Slovakia and Poland, which is right where the Tatra Mountains are. And you can, it, it's a border you can walk across. So it was very exciting to walk across a border that way and picked up a local bus and made our way to Krakow, where we got to meet with the curator at the museum in Krakow. And we stayed there for a week. So at the tail end of the Poprod project, we, we tagged on a week so that we could start negotiating the next project that would follow in Krakow. So that's, that's how we did these things. We, we did some cold calling, but we, we planned ahead so that we could take advantage of our, the geography of where we were located from any, any time to another. You just mentioned the thing about the the ending in ni- the last project in 1999. So was the the organization sort of formally disbanded, or did it just sort of like peter out, or was there a conscious choice to end it? Like, how did it come to some end? We did that project, and then we just didn't pursue other projects. So we didn't do that project thinking that it would be the last project. We didn't plan to end at any particular time you know, that just ended up being the last project that we did. Because I have this feeling that like, there are certain things in creative lives or our creative you know, journeys, like that have a time and a place. And at a certain point, they sort of come to the their purpose in our career sort of comes to an end. And we, we need to step, move on to the next thing. And so I've always wondered sort of why certain things come to ends in, in our careers. Well, it's it's interesting that that was the last project because the Polish artist that we collaborated with, Piotr Kurka, is one of the first artists we met when we were in residence in Marseille at this collaborate. Oh, did we meet them in Castle Levin? No, I think Marseille. Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember. But we met this group of Polish artists. It was a small group, three artists, and I, I don't even know if he spoke English at that point. But we really bonded with this group and we were sort of uh, being inspired off of each other. You know, when you've got a bunch of collaborative artists all working next to each other in the same facility, it's, it's fascinating energy. A lot of sharing, even if you don't speak the same language. At, at any rate, Piotr was one of the artists that we met early, early on back in at least 1989, possibly 1987. And we stayed in contact with him and he would get residencies in the United States and we'd see him when he came to the United States. 
And there was actually, in fact, a huge gap of time where we lost track of him because when we met him, the wall was still up and he had come to work in Europe outside of Poland and he had monitors. He and his art group had monitors to make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing and that they would return to Poland. And Evan and I moved to New York. The wall came down. We, it was not the days of the internet. We lost track of each other. And one evening, Evan and I were in New York City having dinner with a group of artists in Chinatown. And at that time, Evan still smoked cigarettes, and it was a pouring rainstorm. I mean, only, only somebody who's addicted to smoking cigarettes is going to go out and smoke in this pouring rainstorm. And Evan goes outside the Chinese restaurant, again, in New York City, to have a cigarette. And he's out there smoking, and he looks over, and there's Piotr Kurka. And he was here on an artist residency for himself as, a, as an individual artist. And he looks over at Evan and he was always a very wry, he still is a very wry character. And he looks over and says, Evan, the rain, it is like a curtain between us. <laughs> and Evan goes, Kirka? And then he comes running back into the restaurant. You'll never believe who's outside. And the two of them were out there smoking cigarettes in the pouring rain. And we reconnected at that point. So it was very fitting for him to be a part of what turned out to be our last project. It was a nice full circle experience. So I'm, yep. I'm happy about that. Lovely. Anything else? <laughs> I love stories. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of them. We, we'll do a second one, second interview sometime. <laughs> Just stories. All right, we'll do those again next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll update, right? Yeah, absolutely. You've given us the chance to do a little trip down memory lane, which I, was, it's been fun. Great. Yeah. Well, for me too, I mean, just thinking back to the, the experience of having seen this works because like, you know, up until then, my experiences were Smithsonian. So like these precious things, you know, put in the, the sterile environments and every now and then, you know, public arts around DC area were, were great and all that, but, but to see things that were like raw and deconstructed and then i remember <laughs> i'm so sorry to say this but like i remember being told that like oh they're from europe so like everybody around the dc scene was saying oh art attack they're european so like really knew, yeah we did not know there were any americans involved <laughs> uh, wow so like, so so to us we were like oh wow europe has this amazing thing because like europeans are coming here to do their thing here in america so like we thought it was this great sort of import of, of conceptual work from europe mm, well, honestly that was probably more logical than thinking american artists were collaborating because that was the other thing we found over there was that co artists collaborating with each other was pretty pretty common and in the united states it's not or wasn't, I don't know, I don't know now, but it wasn't very common. I, th I think there's groups, groups everywhere now, lots of them. I don't know any of them, but I hear about them occasionally. It's a very big trend right now to create like associations or collectives and things like this. It's yeah. a very big thing. But a lot of it, I think, has to do with funding because I think those kinds of group projects are easier to fund and easier to, to seek funding for than it is to be an individual artist just solely on your own merit kind of thing, getting funding. Hmm. Hmm. That makes sense. The other sort of anecdote, this other fascinating group we met in Kassel was Neuslovenischkunst. Do you know them, NSK? They're from Slovakia, no, Slovenia, 
Slovenian? Probably not by name. I'm really great with artworks. I can remember an artwork. I mean, we're dating ourselves back to pre pre the Berlin Wall coming down. Weren't they Yugoslavian, Evan? Yugoslavian, but when they broke up, they're they're part of Slovenia. Oh yeah, Neue Slovenische Kunst. But they have embassies. They're like a whole governmental. I think there's like 1,200 of them. I mean, they're, they're like a whole culture, and they have a paint. They have a, like an art wing, and they have a political wing, and they have a propaganda wing. They're pretty fascinating. I wonder if they're still around. They formed in 1984. That's when we formed. They have a painter's wing. They used to do like prints with deer's blood and stuff, like these gigantic prints. You know, the stag. The stag is like a big symbol in, in I guess, in Slovenia. Oh, yes. This region, it generates. The stag is very yeah, popular. Yeah. So they were doing these gigantic prints with deer's blood when we saw them. And, and, and that, that particular part of the group is called Irwin, I-R-W-I-N. And I think they're mostly painters and printmakers. But then they have another division of sculptors, and they have, they have all kinds of different things happen. They stopped working in 1992. Oh, they did? Okay. It sounded really cumbersome, but, but they were, they're fascinating. But we only saw them in Kassel. They somehow didn't make it to Marseille. Well, you know, I think the people that made it to Marseille were artists that were all really interacting with each other, and they were really engaging in, in dialogue. And these guys were like a machine. They came in and did their stuff and got out. They, they, were, they were severe. They're like, you know, white, white shirts and ties, kind of bureaucratic. Leibach. Do you know the band Leibach? Leibach's part of Neuss Finnish. Okay. Yeah. L-A-I-B-A-C-H. Yeah. I just sent you some links. They're worth looking up. They're very interesting. Very, very different from us, but very interesting. I will put links to everything that you talked about that I can find on the internet in the show notes for the podcast as well. That's great. Oh, That's great. great. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank Good you. Well. Thank you. Thank Thanks for you. Uh, getting through. Yeah, this has been fun. Yeah. Let's keep in touch. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Bye. Take care. Bye. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website at wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs> <laughs>